Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life. I'm Ryan Pack, and this is a podcast where I interview a guest about a soundtrack that they have a personal connection to. We have the return of Peter Gardner, director, actor, writer, and owner of Shadowlight Entertainment. If you're familiar with the podcast, Peter was on the Raiders of the Lost Ark episode. Today, we're going to (laughs) tackle another classic film, the 1971 Mel Stewart film, Willy Wonka, The Chocolate Factory. Peter, why are we talking about Willy Wonka, The Chocolate Factory today? Well, Ryan, thank you so much for having me back. Well, well, we're talking about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, just as Raiders of the Lost Ark was the 40th anniversary. It's the 50th anniversary of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The official date, I believe, is June 30th. And it's funny because when people ask me what my favorite film is, I say it's a tie between Raiders of the Lost Ark and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. But if you force me to pick one, it would be Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And I'll tell you why. Do I think it's the greatest film ever made, quote unquote? No. But William Goldman, the great screenwriter who wrote you know, Princess Pride, he's also a great novelist, of course, and written so many other things. I won't take up time mentioning him. His, he always talks about how his favorite film was Gunga Din from the 1930s. And he says it's not the greatest, but it's just the one that made him love the movies and he can watch over and over again and always uh, speaks to him. And that's how I feel about Willy Wonka ever since I saw it and my entire life. It's always been about Willy Wonka. And we'll talk about it in detail as we go along. So uh, where would you like me to begin, Ryan? Well, let's start with the soundtrack, since this is a soundtrack podcast. <laughs> uh, there's a familiar name associated with the soundtrack that I learned about recently by doing this podcast, and that is Leslie Bricuse. Leslie Brickus is his actual pronunciation of his name, but a lot of people call him uh, Brickus, so don't don't feel bad. And uh, he happens to be my very favorite songwriter in the world. And he wrote uh, my favorite song, which I'll get to. But I think there's really three people that were musical for Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Leslie Brickus, his oftentimes collaborator, uh, the great Anthony Newley, and then Walter Scharf, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, uh, his last name right. He did the arranging, composing, and the score for Willy Wonka, which is great. It's a great score. Not a lot to it, and most of it is on the soundtrack album. The soundtrack was released in 1971 along with the movie on Paramount Records. And in- interestingly enough, there's never been an expanded version of it, one that had more material, bonus material, demos or anything like that they released for the 25th anniversary of Willy Wonka the same album with the same cues in order on CD and just called it the 25th anniversary which was just a marketing ploy uh, nothing had really changed but I think if you really if we're going to talk Wonka we have to go back to the great Roald Dahl classic novel which is how I became aware of it you know it came out in 1964 interestingly enough it was published first and released first in the United States, even though 
Doll was British and then was released later in the UK that year. But first it was here. And like a lot of kids, including director Mel Stewart's daughter, I read it when I was in elementary school. I think it was probably read to me because when I was about six years old, seven years old, we were having Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, a chapter a day read to us. And that's when I found out in 1969, I think my father told me, they had announced that they were going to make a movie about it. The way the movie came about was Mel Stewart's daughter, like I said, had loved the book. And Mel Stewart worked with David Walper, David L. Walper, who was a producer of documentaries. And Mel Stewart had directed some great documentaries with him, been working with him for years. They were very good friends. They had collaborated on their first narrative film in 1969. If it's Tuesday, it must be Belgium, which is a comedy about sort of a satire comedy about traveling in groups. If you've ever gone on a trip abroad and you've been in a group, how everything's very organized and you're going to all these different places. I just did one recently in Adventures by Disney out in Europe um, right before the pandemic started. So I was lucky enough to do that. But it's it's kind of exhausting because you're going to all these different places and you don't, don't get a lot of rest, but it's fantastic because you get to see everything. So around that time that they had done that film, Mel Stewart's daughter, Madeline, had come to him and said, I read this book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's fantastic. And I think you should go to Uncle Dave and tell him you want to make it into a movie. So Mel Stewart went to David Walper, uh, David Walper rather, and said, uh, my daughter thinks this book is great. I read it. I'm kind of intrigued by it. And they responded to kind of the tone that was a little, it wasn't the typical once upon a time fairy tale. You know, it had these nasty kids in it um, and the good boy who won. And, uh, there was the eccentric Willy Wonka character, which is very different from what we got in the film. And David Walper was intrigued by it. He hadn't even read it yet, but he had a deal with Quaker Oats uh, to, I think he was producing some documentaries for them, and they were somehow in dialogue about some other elements or something they were working on. Uh, and Quaker Oats, the great company that does breakfast oatmeal, and Quaker Oats was going to introduce a candy bar. And then we're going to put it on the market. And David Walper says, I've got just the thing. I've got this great movie that I'm producing. That's about a candy maker. So how about you invest in the movie? And that will be a great promotional push when your candy bar comes out. And he got Quaker Oats to actually commit to the $3 million that they were going to spend, 2 or $3 million to make Willy Wonka the Chocolate Factory. They didn't have a studio. They didn't have a distributor. David Walper felt that you know, they were going to do a negative pickup, meaning that they would make the film and finance it and then find a studio to distribute it. And you would get much more money on the returns. You'd get a better deal than if the studio actually financed it. So that's what they did. They made the film, quote unquote, independently. And then Paramount Pictures signed the deal with them to distribute it for the first seven years. when It was released in 1971. Thus begun the making of the film. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which they had changed to the title of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. And, there, you know, a lot of rumors and speculation of why they did that. The one that director Mel Stewart talks about is that they had changed it to put the focus on Willy Wonka because of the, the candy bar tie-in. Incidentally, when Quaker Oats came up with the candy bar that they were going to put in the market, there was some kind of trouble with the formula they were going to do it. It didn't it didn't work and, and it melted and they never got those candy bars on the shelf. So the 
uh, film was supposed to sell these candy bars. The candy bars never materialized. Later on, of course, there were some Wonka candy bars at stores, but that was a totally different thing from the original Quaker Oats product that was supposed to happen. So they went about uh, getting ready to go ahead and cast the movie and shoot the movie. But Mel Stewart wanted to shoot it in Germany. He didn't want to shoot it at a, a city that you would recognize. So he wanted to go to Germany. And they went to Munich and they wanted to use those locations because he wanted it to be, while realistic, still have sort of a fairy tale feel. He also wanted it to be a timeless feel, like it could be taking place at any time. He didn't want it to be anywhere specific. Somewhere along the way in the pre-production portion of the film, they wanted to go ahead and add music to it. They didn't want to do a full-blown musical, but they wanted to add some songs. And they approached Richard Rogers, maybe the if I forget who someone famous songwriters, they weren't interested. Someone else wasn't available, but ultimately Leslie Brickus says that he got a call from David Walper, who is friends with both he and Anthony Newley. Now, if you're not familiar with either of those gentlemen, Anthony Newley was started as a child star. He played the artful Dodger in the original Oliver film, Oliver Twist based on the great Charles Dickens novel, that's David Lean's great film from 1948, not to be confused from the musical version that came out 20 years later. And he was, you know, a big performer and star. He had met Leslie Brickus. They formed a friendship. And then they decided they wanted to collaborate together. Leslie Brickus had been writing musicals since his college days. And they decided to collaborate on a musical, try to get on the stage uh, with Newley's star power collaborating on all the songs and everything and the result was in the 60s stop the world i want to get off which gave classic songs like what kind of fool am i and some others then their second one was the roar of the grease paint the smell of the crowd with uh, great songs like who can i turn to and feeling good which if i say the song feeling good you may not know it ryan right off the bat but some of your listeners may not know it but you've heard it many times it gets sung so many places, if you go ahead and look it up, you'll definitely recognize it. Both those plays are two tremendous, tremendous hits. Uh, Leslie Brickus went on to go ahead and write movies in an accidental way. He had been working after that on a musical about Noah's Ark, and which to this day, sadly, has never been produced. It's almost like the great lost Leslie Brickus musical, uh, and he was going to do it for stage. Somehow, Arthur P. Jacobs, who wanted to be a film producer, uh, was familiar with Leslie Brickus's Noah's Ark. Arthur P. Jacobs was going to produce a big version of Dr. Doolittle, the uh, classic books, as a big, big film for 20th Century Fox. The Dr. Doolittle books have been around for many years. There's about 15 of them. There's a great story about Walt Disney wanting the rights to those books, I think around the 1950s, somewhere around there. But Walt Disney actually wrote to Hugh Lofting, who wrote the Dr. Doolittle books, and said, you know, I want to, I'm interested in uh, getting the rights to your books and turning them into movies. Here's the arrangements. And, you know, he wanted all the rights. They would have all the merchandising rights, everything. And, you know, D Disney, this is the 1950s. So Disney was very successful and wanted everything. And, you know, he thought it was just standard boilerplate stuff he was looking for. Hugh Lofting wrote back to Disney and said, Dear Mr. Disney, I'm in receipt of your letter. I'm a little confused. You've asked for absolutely everything except my 12-year-old son. What's wrong with him? This <laughs> is wow. a great response. Yeah, exactly. So as you can imagine, that was the end of the possibility of the Walt Disney Company, Walt Disney Productions doing 
Dr. Doolittle. So anyway, Arthur B. Jacobs and 20th Century Fox had actually announced this spectacular big musical that was going to open up on Christmas of 1967 of Dr. Doolittle. And this was fueled by the huge success of Mary Poppins in 1964, where every studio wanted to do a big fantasy musical based on a literary property because that was such a stunning success. They also announced that the great songwriting team of Lerner and Lowe, who had written, you know, fantastic musicals, including My Fair Lady, Paint Your Wagon, were going to write the songs. Well, quickly trouble they just weren't meeting deadlines uh, one of them disappeared and i forget all the details exactly but they were inching closer to a time where they had to make this movie that they had promised for christmas in 1967 and they finally said we have to do something else because it's not going to work it out with learner and low and i think maybe they had broken up and one of them was there but not showing up and disappearing and they just think and not meeting any deadlines and they said we can't do it anymore well, because Arthur P. Jacobs knew of Noah's Ark and Leslie Brickus, he said, well, wait a minute. I know a guy that writes songs about animals. And he showed up. Leslie Brickus was his family around a pool in San Francisco. I think they were visiting Anthony Newley, who was performing up there. And here comes Arthur P. Jacobs, who had called and said he was going to show up and needed to talk to him right away. And he told Leslie Brickus, I'm here to change your life. And as Leslie Brickus talks about in his wonderful autobiography, he says, and so he was, and so he did. And he got Leslie Brickus into the movie business. He hired him to write both the screenplay and the songs for Dr. Doolittle. Have you ever seen the Dr. Doolittle movie with Rex Harrison? Uh, I have not. Okay. It's one of my favorite films. Leslie Brickus was installed in this house in Beverly Hills and you know he'd never written a screenplay all of a sudden he's got to write all these songs and a script he was overwhelmed and the first thing that happened was the 15 Dr. Doolittle books showed up 20th Century Fox shipped them over and he was just overwhelmed he didn't know what he was going to do and uh, all he knew about Dr. Doolittle at that point was it's about a veterinarian that talked to animals so he sat down and wrote the song talk to the animals in two hours it was the first thing he did and that song won Best Song at the Academy Awards after Dr. Doolittle came out, which Leslie Brickus says in his autobiography, making me the first chap to win an Academy Award for his first two hours of work in Hollywood. Dr. Doolittle did not perform well, but it's gone on to become kind of beloved. It led to Leslie Brickus working on uh, Scrooge and a musical adaptation of Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is great. And but he was also working with Anthony Newley. And since David Walper knew him, they were deciding what they were going to do next. And all of a sudden, David Walper calls and says, we're doing a new, a version of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And we'd like you to write the songs. And they decided that, yeah, sure, we'll do it. And Leslie Brickett says later on that he has two regrets about Willy Wonka. And one of them was the fact that they wanted more songs. They wanted to do about nine or 12 and they, David Walper, Mel Stewart said they just wanted six. They didn't want to be a full-blown musical. So they wrote all the songs. And then one day they arrived at David Walper's house. And Mel Stewart says, he'll never forget it. They sat around the uh, piano at David Walper's house. And Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus went ahead and played the songs. Actually, Leslie Brickus played the piano and Anthony Newley sang Pure Imagination the Candyman and the Oompa Loompa songs. 
And, uh, you know, if you think about it, if you remember the movie, really the songs that you have are those. You also have I've Got a Golden Ticket and Cheer Up Charlie. And so that's it. That's really the songs that you have. And they were just, they knew it was going to be a big part of the movie. They thought it was going to be great. It was going to be absolutely fantastic. Mel Stewart was a little bit worried about Gene Wilder, who had been cast in the role of whether he, you know, he thought that Pure Imagination was a little sophisticated in terms of being able to sing it and would he be okay, but he was actually, he did a great job. And now talking about the casting of Gene Wilder, I think that that is one of the most unusual and greatest performances in films. I think that it's just great. You know, other people have done it, obviously, but I think that Gene Wilder is great. You know, in terms of my connection with Willy Wonka, like I said, my dad had told me they were going to make it. And already at age six or seven, I was casting the movie. And my choice for Willy Wonka was Dick Van Dyke. I thought he would have been perfect. And if you think about it, he probably would have, right? He never was considered. Would you like me to tell you about some of the other actors that were considered, Ryan, for Willy Wonka? Yeah, because I know that Roald Dahl did not want Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka. He didn't. He didn't think he was right. And like I said, the character as it's drawn is very different from Gene Wilder. Here's some of the others. I'm reading from a list that they talked about. And this is actually a list that came from the 40th anniversary edition of Willy Wonka, which, by the way, if you are a fan of the film, that is the set to have. You can still get it available for about 60 bucks. If you poke around, you can find it. And it's got original letters to Gene Wilder from Gene Wilder. It's got a gold ticket for you. It's kind of other cool things as well as the movie itself. But here is some of the people they were considering. Uh, James Cagney, Danny Kaye, Ron Moody, who played Fagan and Oliver a couple years before, maybe a year before, Peter Sellers, Ray Bolger, Richard Attenborough. How about that? Jurassic Park would have been the second time he gave a tour of something if he had done that. Gene Kelly, Spike Milligan, a great British comedian, Harry Seacombe, who played Mr. Bumble, and um, I think that's his name, and Oliver. Donald Pleasance. How about that? And Marie Chevalier, the great French entertainer. So that was just some of the ones that they had considered. I think the most interesting casting tidbit from Willy Wonka is there was an actor who wanted to play it and didn't get to and kind of expressed interest in it. Uh, Leslie Brickus, again, in his autobiography, says that years later, or a few years later, after Willy Wonka came out, he was had a dinner guest over his house, a neighbor, and after dinner they were playing pool. And this dinner guest said, listen, there's something I've always wanted to ask you, Leslie, and I didn't really want to bring it up because I, I didn't know how to ask or felt bad about it, but why wouldn't they let me play Willy Wonka? And Leslie Brickus was stunned because he had no idea that this person was interested and wanted to do it. Guess who it was? Well, since you already said Gene Kelly was on the list, I would have guessed him, but I'm not sure. You're very close. Want to take another guess? Cary Grant? Nope. Although he was, I think he was talked about at one point, just read, but the person who was playing pool with Leslie Brickus was Fred Astaire. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you think about it, Fred Astaire at that time, he had just done Finian's Rainbow in 1967, Francis Ford Coppola's, one of Francis Ford Coppola's first films. So just in case any of your listeners are wondering, Leslie Brickus says that Fred Astaire was as adept on a pool table as he was on a dance floor. He was a great pool player. So 
probably didn't know that about Fred Astaire. So there was a lot of different casting choices and discussion of different roles. But Mel Stewart said when Gene Wilder walked in and they met him, they just said he got the part. Of course, there is a great story about Gene Wilder coming up with Wonka's entrance where he comes out of the factory and he's uh, pretending that he's he's having difficulty walking and he's got a cane and then the cane gets stuck and he does a flip. That was Gene Wilder's idea. And Gene Wilder says he only wanted to do the film if he could do that because he said from that point on, the audience would never know if he was lying or not or telling the truth. And he wanted that little bit of edge and a little bit of mystery, which played very well right into the ending of it. Getting back, of course, the wonderful music. The songs are great. I think Pure Imagination is one of the best Leslie Burkus songs. And it's one of my favorites of his. I had mentioned that Leslie Burkus wrote my very favorite song, which was a song that was actually cut from Dr. Doolittle after the first premiere called Something in Your Smile. It's a beautiful song. And if your listeners want to look around for it, I think my favorite recording of it is by his friend and partner, Anthony Newley, who sings it. Uh, and it's a great song, but it never made it first to pass the first preview of Dr. Doolittle. It is on the soundtrack album with Rex Harrison kind of talking it as he does his songs that he does in My Fair Lady and in Dr. Doolittle, uh, because the soundtrack album was released well before the movie came out. And between the release of the soundtrack album of Dr. Doolittle and the movie, they cut the song. But anyway, getting back to Willy Wonka, of course, the night that Gene Wilder was going to record Pure Imagination, Anthony Newley dropped by into the studio and gave him a hug and wished him well and then left. Gene Wilder says it's because, you know, that a lot of times it'll make the actor nervous having the composer there singing the song. So Gene Wilder went ahead and recorded it. And of course, they pre-recorded all the songs before they shot the movie and there was a lot of lip syncing going on. And then I think they recorded them again after the shooting. When you're doing a musical, you're, you're not actually singing on the set unless there's a couple of exceptions to that. But Willy Wonka, everything was pre-recorded ahead of time. When they actually screened the film for Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus, they weren't thrilled with the way some of the production numbers were handled. They were a little disappointed. They First of all, they felt that the actor playing the Candyman who sang the song, the, the one who owns the shop, Bill's Candy Shop, and sings the Candyman first song in the film, didn't do that good of a job, and uh, he just wasn't a singer. and just wasn't what they wanted. Anthony Newley said that he would be happy to play the Candyman and do it for free just to refilm that scene. But Mel Stewart didn't want to use Anthony Newley or Sammy Davis Jr. also wanted to play that part. He didn't want it to become too Hollywood. Another musical number also, kind of that logic prevailed. Uh, There was talk of turning the song, I've Got a Golden Ticket, when Charlie finds the golden ticket, and Grandpa Joe, after being bedridden for 20 years, which, by the way, one of my favorite piece of exposition dialogue in any movie is when you first see the four grandparents in the same bed, and the mom says, well, with the four of you bedridden for the past 20 years, I mean, that's hilarious. It just throws it away. It's like, and that's the whole, the heart of the movie. It's kind of off balance. It's in its own reality. You know, obviously something like that wouldn't happen. It's from the book, but the way they delivered that line so straight is amazing. The I Got a Golden Ticket number, I, it was just Grandpa Joe and Charlie dancing in the house, the little house that lived in, which is one room just the two of them singing that number there was talk about 
that they wanted to turn into a big production number with, uh, you know, just a huge production number with everybody in the town joining in. And Mel Stewart was like, no, no, no. It, it's not going to make any sense that people are going to want to suddenly stop what they're doing, leave their homes, leave their jobs, leave their office, and jump in the street and start dancing and singing because some little boy won the lottery. <laughs> that was his words that he said. So they kept things small. Apparently, according to Mel Stewart, that uh, Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley really had a problem with was the Oompa Loompa numbers. Of course, I'm talking about when four of the kids meet their demise, the Oompa Loompas sing a number, which has obviously become almost iconic and very popular. You know, everybody knows that Oompa Loompa song. And each one was tailored for each child. And they thought the choreography was a little rough. And then even Mel, Mel Stewart, uh, the director, agreed with them on this. They didn't like the fact that the, if you remember the, uh, film kind of recedes and the words appear on the screen uh, so you're seeing the actual lyrics appear on the screen right next to them in sort of a very 60s psychedelic style which was of the day and that was david o Whopper's idea david Whopper wanted it mel stewart didn't want it he thought it was too much but he had to yield to the producer and those stayed and so Leslie Brickus and Anthony Newley don't know too much about Anthony Newley. Not too much has been noted about his thoughts of it, other than he was willing to go ahead and take the role of the Candyman to reshoot that scene. But Leslie Brickus wasn't too thrilled with how the film turned out. He didn't say anything really terrible. I know some friends have met him, and he's, as they said, he's just a lovely man. But in his autobiography says that in time Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory has been very kind to us all and he's talking about the fact that the film was not a big hit when it was released did not do very well at the box office it was like 53rd that year in 1971 it was you know in a budget of three or four million I think it grossed a little bit more than it cost to make but they were expecting more of it but what happened over the years is it started to appear on television and cable and more and more people saw it and it just reached a wider audience and it became more popular and more popular by the time they got around to the 25th anniversary they actually re-released it in theaters the film was actually re released in mono but they remixed it for stereo they took some of the stereo elements that they had from the album i believe and remixed it the soundtrack album came out about the same time as the film, if not just before. The film was actually released in a little bit of a strange way. And that kind of brings us to my connection with it. So, Ryan, are you ready to hear my fun, sometimes sad tale of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay. It's, it may be a little bit of a therapy session. So here we go. Like I said, I was totally looking forward to it. Couldn't wait to see it. They released it in kind of an unusual way in 1971. They released it in different cities, not everywhere at once. So some cities would have it, then it was going to come to another city. I'm now eight years old, 1971, and can't wait to see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. One of the local movie theaters in Calabasas, where I grew up, uh, this is the El Camino Shopping Center Theater, which is now, there's a Taco Bell where it is. And they had on the marquee, coming July 15th, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, my family was going to Hawaii the day before for a vacation, which would be our first time in Hawaii. And we were going on this trip, and I was bummed because I was going to miss Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? Some kid, I was, you know, why wouldn't I be excited about Hawaii? No, I wanted to see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. 
Well, we went to Hawaii, and like I said, it would have been kind of rotating and playing in different states. When we got to Hawaii, Willy Wonka had just opened, was already playing there. I remember my father reading a review in the paper, in the Honolulu paper. It raved about it, and they said it was just a great family film. And keep in mind, Ryan, family films around this time – you didn't get classics all the time and they, you know, sometimes weren't good. You know, Dr. Doolittle was not considered a great film. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which came out in 1968 was not considered a great film. And that was another bid for the big screen fantasy musical. Of course, now these films are beloved, but when they came out, they were not considered the great films and they were not huge successes. And so you had Disney films and you had Disney releasing in 1971. They released a film called Million Dollar Duck with Dean Jones. I don't think I need to tell you any more about that because you probably have already guessed it's about a duck that suddenly learned, lays golden eggs, right? Right. <laughs> so it's like I probably didn't even have to mention it to you. So there was not a lot of classic movies, but this paper in, the, uh, in Honolulu said that this was you know, a great family film and so my dad was impressed with that and of course he'd heard me talk his ear off about it so one morning we're having breakfast in hawaii and i i said to my dad you know he said oh it looks like it's gonna rain a little bit tomorrow and i i said you know if it rains tomorrow dad can we go see willy wonka the chocolate factory and he said have you ever heard of benjamin franklin (laughs) and i said what does that got to do with willy wonka the chocolate factory he was a president and my dad said yes well he always said Never put off till tomorrow what you can do today. Let's go see it today. And I was obviously very excited. So my dad, remember my dad going to the concierge. It's amazing. I don't remember all this, but he went to the concierge, finding out how to get to the theater. Was it close enough to watch? Should we take a cab? So my mom went shopping and my dad took myself and my sister Allison to go see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory at the Royal Theater in Waikiki. And I remember it very clearly. It was a very nice theater. And uh, I don't know if it was a Saturday, but it sure felt like it because the theater was just filled with kids. And they were already playing the soundtrack. Uh, you could hear the soundtrack playing. Well, the unusual thing about the soundtrack, Ryan, was it had, because there was only a few songs, it had some of the score. It also had a lot of the sound effects. So I don't know how familiar you are with the soundtrack, but it's got a lot of the sounds from the inventing room, from when my TV is set by television. Uh, mm-hmm. You hear uh, the Wonka mobile when they're riding it, and all the, the suds are, are, are pouring out. So there's a lot of sound effects that are on the album, along with the songs and a lot of the score. And so they were playing it, and I can still remember sitting there, and I'm hearing, uh, it was almost, we call it a spoiler now, but it was just getting cited. I remember hearing the inventing room and a couple lines of dialogue. Then I remember hearing the scene that was not in the book, but they added for the movie, where Grandpa Joe and Charlie uh, steal the fizzy lifting drinks and almost get killed by the fan. And they had all the dialogue of, you know, Mr. Wonka, help, we're going to get killed. And I'm like, what is this? You know, now I was really intrigued. They made changes. It was going to be amazing. So then the movie starts, and it didn't start right away. There were two things that were really surprising. First, there was a documentary that they showed that seemed to go on forever. And it was about how McDonald's was sponsoring school marching bands, which, you know, under any circumstances, you're not going to be too interested when you're eight years old. But when you're waiting for this movie, 
and it's in the way. It w- seemed to go on forever. Then there was a coming attraction, and the coming attraction they decided to show in the afternoon to all these kids was for the movie Willard. Are you familiar with the movie Willard? I am not? not. Okay. You ever hear of Ben? How about Ben? Have you ever heard of Ben? Gentle Ben? No, <laughs> but good call. Willard is about a guy that collects rats and trains rats, and they become killer rats. And um, the sequel is Ben, which is along the same way, and a quasi-horror film. And it is not something you want to show the trailer to a bunch of kids. But then came Willy Wonka on the Chocolate Factory, and it was absolutely fantastic. And I loved it. It had, of course, a lot of changes from the novel. They, the Slugworth character was invented by a screenwriter named David Seltzer. Uh, Roald Dahl had written a f- couple of drafts of the movie. That was when they bought the rights from him to turn it into the film. One of the conditions was he was going to write the script. But so he brought in David Seltzer to change it. They thought it needed a villain, so they uh, ramped up the Slugworth character, which is mentioned in the book, but he's not as prominent as he is in the movie. How he tempts each kid as he wins the ticket. And of course, you find out at the end, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen Willy Wonka, you're going to watch it again uh, at the end that he's actually an employee of Wonka's and he's just testing all the kids uh, to see who's honest because Wonka is ultimately looking for someone to replace him and take over the factory. There was, you know, and a few other changes as well, uh, but enough stuff that was loyal to the book. And I thought the changes were great. I loved it. My father, who did not know the story, absolutely loved the film. And I remember him saying that and Mary Poppins uh, is a film that parents can enjoy with their children. My dad used to take us to these movies that would come out that were like filmed over. They were fairy tales, live action fairy tales that were filmed overseas and dubbed in and they were terrible and he hated it. But he would take us when we were very young because he knew we would enjoy them. And, you know, my dad was not particularly a big fan of, of children's films unless they're really good. But he loved Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. So I got to see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory on my first trip to Hawaii. And naturally, I think of that every time. The, the Royal Theater is now gone. Uh, there's like a grocery store there in Honolulu. And we went, as you do when you're, especially on your first trip to Hawaii, we went to more than one island. Our next stop was Maui. And of course, all I wanted to do in Maui was go see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory again. I remember my father saying, we, we don't have to go see it. I'll do it for you right now. And he told the whole story really fast and making all the jokes and, you know, just telling the whole thing and sound effects. But he slowed down for one thing at the end, which is that fantastic line they came up with. When they were filming the movie in the original script, Roald Dahl had written that portion. Um, it just had Grandpa saying, yippee, as the great class elevator took off into the skies and after Wonka told Charlie he had won the factory. And they called David Seltzer, who was now away from the project. He had left Germany and he was in a remote cabin in like Maine or something like that. And they called him and he said, I'm on vacation. Mel Stewart said, I know, but we're on the set. We have all these people standing around. We need an ending for the movie because all we have is grandpa saying, yippee, we need a new line for the movie. And David Seltzer thought about it and thought about it. And he said, well, you know, there's all these tests going on and testing all the children and all these, you know, morals that we're learning. How about if Willy Wonka turns to Charlie and says, but Charlie, don't forget what happened to the man who suddenly got everything he's always wanted. He lived happily ever after. 
And David Seltzer said there was a silence on the other end of the phone. And he thought, oh, I'm so, I'm so done. But Mostert said, that's it. That's it. That's the line. And he hung up the phone and went and shot it. And Gene Wilder said when Mel Stewart told him what David Seltzer had come up with, he got the chills. And it is a great line. And when my father told his version of Willy Wonka slowed down, he emphasized that line. That's, you know, he thought that was just such a great line. And I just remember my father's reaction to that film and the songs and little moments of it. It, it was just great. And I, I don't believe he ever saw it again. I think he just saw it that one time, but he always remembered what a great film it was. Our next stop was the Big Island of Hawaii. And we stayed at the Mauna Kea Hotel in Hawaii. And they actually had a glass elevator. And to me, of course, it was the great glass walk elevator uh, from the film. But little did I know, Ryan, if you remember that name, the Mauna Kea Hotel, that outside on that beach, six years later, two gentlemen would be building a sandcastle. And they were Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. And George Lucas would tell Steven Spielberg about his idea for a film about an adventure archaeologist. I told you I, it's a little bit of a therapy session because I have two slightly traumatic stories about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. I hope you don't cry. Before the movie came out, there used to be a kid's TV show called Hobo Kelly. And it was an Irish actor. I forget her name. She's since passed. But it was a very popular TV show that was on, I think, daily. And it was a syndicated kid's show. And she would have characters and almost like Mr. Rogers, but it was a quote-unquote hobo. Now, try to get away today with doing any kind of a show called Hobo Something. You just, you know, don't do that. But it was a lovable character. She had a memorable theme song. And a couple of months or a month before uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was going to open, they she announced they were going to have a contest where you could write in or send in and when tickets to the premiere of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or a screening of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, you were going to go to Paramount Pictures and get a tour of the studio and then see Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory before it came out. And it was a big, big promotion. And I did whatever I had to do. I forget what I did. Wrote in, you know, had my mom help me. I, you know, had to get in to do this. And of course, I was not selected. I lost. So... Unlike Charlie, I was not lucky. I did not win the contest or go to the premiere. What happened afterwards was even worse. One of the things they used to promote Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was they had a candy-making kit that you could get by mailing in two uh, tops of Captain Crunch cereal and a dollar. <laughs> And what you would get are these little plastic molds where you can make your own Wonka bars. And it came with, you know, candy wrappers that looked just like the Wonka bars from the movie. And maybe some tinfoil, I can't remember, but it had definitely had the, the wrappings. And they had also said chocolate included. Well, what you got was a coupon to go to the store and get a specific bag of Nestle's chocolate, which you then had to, in a very convoluted fashion, pour into a plastic bag put the plastic bag in a boiling pot of water on the stove, melt the chocolate, pour into the mold, put the mold in the refrigerator or freezer, make it, you know, get so get hard. Then you take it out, take it out of the mold, wrap it up, and then you had your own candy bar. So it was an actual, you know, Willy Wonka factory kit that you had. Here was the thing. 
the coupon, like I said, was for a specific bag of Nestle's chocolate. And what it was, was brand new. Nobody had ever had it. It was Nestle's semi-sweet chocolate. Now, we live in a world, of course, where there's semi-sweet, dark chocolate, and everything else, and sugar-free. But up until that time, 1971, nobody had had anything but milk chocolate. Semi-sweet chocolate is not something anybody knew about or had tasted. This was a brand new thing. So my plan at age eight was I was going to make these Wonka bars and then sell them door to door in my neighborhood. So I, uh, first thing is you go ahead and you, you melt this chocolate, you put it in the mold. The refrigerator didn't cool it off enough. So you put it in the freezer. Then when they're ready, now they're cold. And if you bite into it, it's, it's too hard and it'll break your teeth. And then the next step was to go ahead and wrap it in the, in the wrappers that came with the kit. And that by, they started to melt instantly. Like these things were just, and it was a mess. But one way or the other, I got all these chocolate bars wrapped up, put them in a ice cooler at my parents' recommendations because they were melting. So, and now the paper outside is getting wet. <laughs> and I've got it on a wagon and I'm going door to door selling these candy bars uh, for a dollar or whatever I was selling for. I think in those days, you could buy a Hershey bar for 10 cents, literally. So it probably wasn't that much. Maybe it was five cents I was selling them for. And the problem was, is that you, people at bottom would eat them and it'd be the semi-sweet chocolate, which you'd never tasted before. Now imagine that, Ryan. You've all your life you've been eating milk chocolate and all of a sudden you bite into semi-sweet chocolate. So it was a kind of a thing where parents were going, oh, that, that Peter Gardner, look how industrious he is. He's going door to door selling chocolate bars that he made, and, you know, turning to their kids and going, what are you doing? You're sitting in mud in the backyard doing nothing. And look at Peter Gardner. Yeah. But then they take one bite of the candy bar I sold them and then look at their kid and go, okay, you can't play with the Gardner kid anyway. You know, it's, <laughs> it's the most hated kid in the neighborhood. The one great story, of course, is when we got home from Hawaii, I got the soundtrack out. And I told you in the last visit that I you know, loved soundtracks and loved records and loved movie scores. And it's still a, you know, movie scores are a big part of my writing process now. I almost pre-score a movie uh, that I'm writing or a screenplay when I'm writing by picking out the right score for it. And I'll actually listen to it and develop scenes and almost like, it's, you know, from a different movie, but it becomes the soundtrack for the screenplay that I'm writing. And, you know, oftentimes it's very different from the type of movie that it actually came from. It's not necessarily the same at all. Um, so I've always loved soundtracks. So got the soundtrack for Willy Wonka, the Chocolate Factory, and absolutely loved it. Not sure exactly where it was recorded. But one of the wonderful things about it was, again, the movie was not in the stereo but you had Walter Scharf's great orchestrations and stereo on the soundtrack album. The soundtrack opens with the main title for the movie over the great sh shot of chocolate being made in actual chocolate factories. Those were shot in Anaheim. <laughs> we were just talking about our locations. And, to, you know, so right around Disneyland, uh, Mel Stewart said they shot at a couple different chocolate factories in Orange County, but I know they were in Anaheim specifically. So it opens with that. Uh, the next cut is The Candyman, which is a great song. I think, with all respect to Mr. Brickus, of course, I think that the guy does a very nice job that sings it. By the way, if you watch, go back and watch the movie, there's a famous little blooper in it where you know the candy man is sing uh, the owner of the candy shop is singing the candy man 
and all the kids are gathering around and he starts handing out candy. And at one point he opens up counter and lets all the kids behind the counter, you know, with a little flip counter. I don't know what you'd call it, you know, lifts it up so they can get there behind it. And if you watch when he lifts it up, he actually smacks one of the kids, a little girl under the chin with it, just uppercuts it with them. And in 2017, there was a Tom and Jerry movie that was called Tom and Jerry, Willy Wonka, the chocolate factory, where it interspersed Tom and Jerry with actual shots from this film version of Willy Wonka we're talking about with all the orchestrations and all the songs and, you know, it has its own Tom and Jerry plot, but the tour of the factories there. And it's almost gives you like a different perspective with Tom and Jerry intergoing with all the things that are happening in the movie. And it's pretty extraordinary, but they use that, that little bit of the little girl getting hit with the counter when they open it up. So that's funny. Uh, from that, it goes into Charlie's paper run uh, where he's running through the streets and he runs into the man when he's, he, Charlie is looking inside the gates of the factory and do you remember that creepy scene where the guy shows up at the cart and talks about how nobody goes in and nobody goes out? Remember that scene from the film, Ryan? Yeah. And if you look at that guy's cart, it's like, what kind of business is that? He's got like butcher knives and knives hanging from there. It's just bizarre. So that little bit of dialogue is there. Then we go into Cheer Up Charlie. Cheer Up Charlie gets a bad rap, I think. It's a lovely moment in the film. Now, I think that because it's slower and they worried about that. And all streets said they worried that it would slow things down a little bit. But it's a nice scene where Charlie goes and sees his mom who's working at this laundry and tells him, you know, tells her that they found the third ticket. And then he leaves and Charlie's very sad. And she sings a song called Cheer Up, Charlie, which they had actually used in some of the advertisements. I remember seeing it before it came out, that and Golden Ticket. They showed some clips. And it's it's actually a really lovely song. And from Cheer Up Charlie, we go into a great musical cue where uh, Charlie finds the coin in the gutter. And then the great music where he, you know, sees the newsstand that the fifth ticket has was a fake. And he uh, opens up the candy bar and there's great suspense music. And then he opens the bar and you see that little flash of gold. And then the orchestra just swells. And as he opens up the Wonka ticket and then the queue continues as he runs home and ends with him running into Slugworth. What's missing, unfortunately, is one of my favorite pieces of music in the movie. It's right after Slugworth tempts him and tells him to find the everlasting gobstopper for when he runs away from Slugworth and runs home. It's, you know, a little arrangement by Walter Sheriff of I've got a golden ticket and it's just great. And that whole section of music is just fantastic. It's only part of it's on the soundtrack. I'd love to get that one day. From that, your next track is I've Got a Golden Ticket with Grandpa Joe and Charlie. And then, of course, we go into Pure Imagination with that great, <laughs> the great joke about right before they go into the chocolate room, how Willy Wonka takes down the little mini piano and plays just a little bit of Mozart and Mike TV's mother turns to Veruca Salt's father and says, Rachmaninoff. And that, to me, is just the great heart of the movie, of that wacky sense of humor it has and the sort of nuttiness to it. Ryan, have you, did you get a chance to ride Rise of the Resistance at Disneyland before everything closed down? I haven't been in a couple of years. I haven't seen any of Galaxy's Edge. Oh, you have not been to Galaxy's Edge yet? 
Well, I don't want to give any spoilers here, but as a, at a preview of, of Rise of the Resistance with my good friend, uh, DJ Matson, who was a cast member. And so I got to go to a cast member preview. And I don't want to say too much about, about uh, Rise of the Resistance because it's so reliant on surprises. But at one point you go into this little room and it reminds you so much of that first room they go into when they first get to the factory where they go in and there's no, no door to get out. And then they turn around and Walker goes at the same door and says, ah, here we are. <laughs> it's really funny. And so both DJ and I at the same time, each other and said, Rachmaninoff. <laughs> that was kind of our key. Another good friend, Isaac Robinson Smith, also was in on that joke. So that leads us into pure imagination, which is, uh, again, great orchestrations, beautifully sung by Gene Wilder. Another problem that Leslie Brickus had with the film and that song was, if you remember, when they go in and, and Wonka starts to sing Pure Imagination, he kind of breaks up the beginning of the song a little bit where he does steps backwards and forwards, and there's a little break where he does some beats of music and you know steps back and forth, and so there's a little break between the lyrics. Uh, Leslie Brickus wasn't crazy about it. I think it works really well in the film, and it's again adding to the nuttiness character of Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka and how he's not really quite trustworthy and you kind of have to be on your toes. But then, of course, he warms up when he gets to the bottom of the st stairs and he bows and lets everybody run to the factory. I remember that little clip was big on the promotions that you saw on television when the movie came out. Pure Imagination has been recorded by many, many uh, great artists. I know Barbara Streisand, if you look around, you can find her singing live in a concert. And that has additional lyrics that Leslie Burkus wrote. And it's just great. So that's your first side of the original soundtrack album. The second side begins with the Oompa song. And before that, it's Wonka playing a little little ditty on his a pipe that calls the Oompa that was actually written by Mel Stewart. He, uh, Mel Stewart said he originally wanted to be a composer and he was studying in school. But then when he was about 22, I forget who, who is, he saw some great concert with some great composer and he realized he didn't have the talent to do that. To David Wolper and said, I'd like to compose a little something that we can use in the movie. And he came up with that little two second ditty that Wonka plays on his pipe. And that leads us into the first Oompa Loompa song. The next. Uh, cut is the voyage on the Wonkatania on the boat ride, which starts as a wonderful orchestral piece of pure imagination as they're on the boat without the dialogue that's on it. So you do get a great piece of score. And then it segues into the tunnel scene, <laughs> the infamous tunnel scene. How old were you when you saw Willy Wonka? Did it scare you, Ryan? Yeah, I was probably, you know, seven or eight the first time I saw it. So there are definitely some very dark parts of that film. Yeah, there's no question about it. it. You know, inappropriate because, you know, Doll was definitely dark. So anyway, that track takes us out of the tunnel scene with that scary music. And then we go into the inventing room on the next track, which has got all the great sound effects from the inventing room. And I remember hearing that at the Royal Theater before it with with Wonka's saying the line, what you're witnessing is, you know, a miracle of the machine age, a, a creation of a, a confectionery giant. And then it goes into the second Oompa Loompa song. Uh, after the demise of Violet Beauregard when she blows up like a blueberry. And then the next track, I think, is uh, Charlie and Grandpa Joe when they steal the fizzy lifting drinks and float up towards the fan, which has got that nice lilting score. 
and then turns terrifying when you realize they might die. Again, I heard it before the movie started when they were playing the soundtrack and I was wondering what it was. And it was a surprising scene because they had added it as David Seltzer had added, you know, the whole subplot of, of Slugworth becoming a major character. And at the end, of course, Wonka is going to nullify all the deal because they stole the fizzy lifting drinks. After that, you've got uh, one of my favorite tracks for sure. One of my favorite numbers, Julie Don Cole singing, I want it now which is just great. That whole scene is great. That's what the goot slaying the golden eggs. So you got two movies, Ryan, in 1971 with, with uh, birds laying golden eggs. You got the Wonka movie, Willy Wonka, and Million Dollar Duck. So we were just, you know, lousy with, with uh, you know, animals laying golden eggs. It was great. But uh, getting back to Julie Don Cole, great performance, great song, and I love how when she's tearing apart that room and the uh, the Oompa Loompas are trying to stop her and waving their hands and she's shoving the uh, shopping cart and the box is not going to work at that point. It's just his hand is over his face and he's just waiting for it to end. And I remember the theater's reaction when she climbs up to on top of the educated, edu- educated egg decator and falls down the chute, down the garbage chute. Now that's different from the book because in that scene they actually went in a room and they had squirrels that were testing the nuts and this is all portrayed in the tim burton version from 2015 they did it that way but this they used the geese that laid the golden eggs so it was a little bit different in that scene in the film there's there's a little moment that is why I love one of the reasons why I love the film so much and the nuttiness, the little details that you may or may not notice. It's stuff like this. Right after Veruca Salt goes down the chute, Mr. Salt, played by the great Roy Kinnear, a great British actor and comedian, you know, says, Where does that chute go? And 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 um he and Walker says the garbage chute, it goes to the furnace. And he says, the furnace, and Roy Kinnear says, she'll be sizzled like a sausage. And as he says it, he kind of, with his fingers, toys with Wonka's big bow tie. And Wonka says, not necessarily. And as Wonka says it, he grabs Mr. Salt's necktie and jostles it back and forth. And it's just little bits like that that I love. If you watch the scene where Mike TV wins the golden ticket, you see Slugworth, you know, who appears whenever a child wins a golden ticket. He's the man with the microphone as they're being interviewed by the news crew. And the way he's swinging the microphone around not even catching anybody. He's just idly running it back and forth. It's so funny. Uh, and it shows you uh, what a great comedic actor, the guy who plays Slugworth is, Gunther Meisner. He, must, he can't do that without having great comic timing. So that same track goes from I Want It Now and her falling down the chute into the next Impalupa number. And uh, if you remember that one, that's the one about, you know, what? who do you blame when the kids are a brat? You know, blame me the kid is a lion of shame. You know exactly who's to blame. And I remember 50 years later, my father going, the parents. <laughs> and of course, they say the mother and the father. But, but I did, you know, my dad knew exactly what was what. So from that, you go into the Wonkamobile, Wonka- uh, where Wonka is singing, um, I think it's a German national anthem or something. Uh, it, it, that, that what Wonka is singing is actually a specific thing and i forget what it is but they're on the wonka mobile and it's all the suds are coming out and then they all get clean 
then it segues very briefly into sounds from the Mike TV room where he sent via television and a million pieces. That's one of my favorite lines too. When Mike TV gets sent by television as it's, it's called in the book and, you know, Wonka describes how it'll transmit the bar of candy to a million pieces and send it to the television set and rearrange it perfectly. And Mike TV says, hey, what about a person? And Wonka says, I don't know. I don't think it would work. Might have some messy results. And before you know, Mike TV is up there and he transmits it himself and Charlie goes, where did he go? And they look up and you see all this, the pieces floating above it. And Grandpa Joe says, he's up there in a million pieces, <laughs> which is such a ridiculous line. It's hilarious. And then that cut, that track goes right into the last Oompa Loompa number about Mike TV and watching television. The final track on the soundtrack is uh, the sounds of the great class Wonka Vader. In the book, it's called The Great Glass Elevator. In the book, it's called The Great Glass. In the movie, it's called The Great Glass Wonkavator. Going up and out uh, and out of the factory and crashing through the factory. We hear the score from Pure Imagination. And then the movie ending perfectly with that great line. And then Pure Imagination swelling in the chorus. Singing the lyrics to Pure Imagination, which perfectly complement the whole spirit of the movie. You know, Leslie Brickus did get his wish to add more songs. They did a theater production called Roll Dolls Willy Wonka in about 2004, which incorporated all the songs from the film. Then some new ones that roll, that uh, Leslie Brickus actually wrote. And this is common for Leslie Brickus. A lot of his film productions have become stage productions. And he's added to the score using a lot of the songs uh, from the film and then if not all of them and then adding to it he did it for his film of goodbye mr chips from 1969 which is a great film with peter o'toole it just didn't do well at the box office because people were over big musicals by then but they made a great version of james hilton's goodbye mr chips in the 1930s at mgm with robert donan great another great performance i definitely encourage anyone to check out the musical version of Goodbye, Mr. Chips from 1969 with songs by Leslie Brickus and composed and arranged by his buddy, John Williams. So there we have John Williams predating all the, all the great Star Wars stuff. And uh, it was around the same time as the Reavers, which I mentioned on the last episode. And so that wound up on stage with John Mills in 1982, I believe. Scrooge from 1970, which you covered so wonderfully on another episode which is you know, a film that I love, that wound up uh, in the West End in 1992, I want to say, somewhere around there, with Anthony Newley playing the role. Another wonderful gentleman, Tommy Steele, who actually wants to do a film of mine, Mr. Christmas. I've written a film called Mr. Christmas, which is a family Christmas movie, and a lot of great senior actors like Dick Van Dyke and some others, Tommy Steele, want to do it. That ran on the West End for many years, many Christmases. Anthony Newley, Tommy Steele, I think a couple of actors have played him. And again, with some great additional songs as well. So he wrote this version of Willy Wonka called Roll Dolls Willy Wonka, which has got some additional songs that are very, very nice. I really like them. So there you have it. It is the 50th anniversary of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. In preparation for this, when you emailed me and said, can we do it in a couple of days, I immediately set aside an evening to revisit it. And it's still as wonderful as it always was. And I think it's because of Mel Stewart's choice 
to go ahead and uh, set it. It's not a specific time. The only thing that really happens is Charlie runs by a Volkswagen. That's the only thing I can think. That's really- I've had the good fortune to meet a lot of people that have been involved with the film. Uh, I've met director Mel Stewart, who is now gone. Uh, and he was a very nice man. At first, I, I, he, there were a few screenings of Willy Wonka at the American Cinematheque and some other places where he showed up. And he kind of has a sarcastic sense of humor. I remember they have this packed theater at the American Cinematheque to see Willy Wonka about 18 years ago. They said, here he is, the man who directed it. Here is Mel Stewart. And he came out, and as everyone's standing and applauding, he said, what are you doing paying to see a movie you could stay at home and watch on television? <laughs> you know, that's the kind of guy he was. And uh, I remember I was performing at the comedy store fairly regularly years ago. And met him and some other things, and he signed my. He, he came out with a book. He's promoting a book on the making of Willy Wonka, and I have a, one signed from him. And he wrote, "Peter, may you find a golden ticket," which I thought was very nice. So um, I was passing the time before going on stage at the comedy store, and I was at Virgin Mega Store. If you want to date this story, on Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, which is across the street on Sunset, and there was Mel Stewart looking at books, and I said, "Mr. Stewart." My name is Peter Gardner. We've met, uh, at, and he said we did, kind of, you know, suspiciously, but that was again the kind of guy he was. And we ended up talking and chatting, and I told him that I was, you know, I told him about some of my projects, and I actually had some phone conversations with him. I remember you could call him, and you would not get an assistant or a secretary or anyone answer. All of a sudden, the phone would answer, and you'd hear, "This is Bell Stewart." You know, that was the kind of guy he was, but he was very encouraging in his own way and, you know, very straightforward. And I really liked him a lot. Uh, and I was glad I got to meet him. I have met all five kids and I am lucky enough to say that I have a golden ticket signed by Mel Stewart and all five kids from the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, which is, I cherish it. It's great. Those are my memories and of what I think is the film that really reminds me of of falling in love with movies i think more than any other film i just remember how much i loved it the magic of it the great great music and that great great soundtrack yeah for sure 50 years later it's still permeating pop culture there was a 90s girl fronted rock band called vruk assault right and then just a few years ago on the last tribe called quest album they sample the oompa loompa song at to tie the first and second songs together to kind of show that they were going to go on a bit of a dark journey. And I believe, <laughs> I believe they're also poking fun at Donald Trump. Cause I think people say that he kind of looks like an Oompa Loompa. Oh, uh, I, I don't want to make it political on your show political, but um, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, he does, you know, there's an orange. Yeah. Uh, there's, quali- there's just, a, just physically. And again, I don't want to get too much into the history of it, but you know, the Oompa Loompas, there was, it was controversial. They were, you know, um, they, they had a different look in the book and the original illustrations, uh, which have changed over the years. And they certainly changed them for the film. So I think for the, because there were some uh, film, certainly some racist elements to the original appearance of the Oompa Loompa, uh, Oompa Loompas, you know, what they were. But let me just tell you that when I saw, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory on Broadway in 2017, when the Oompa Loompas appeared, like all of a sudden they were rushed on the stage and the singing the song, 
that audience went wild and it just shows you how beloved those songs are. So even with Mr. Brickus's concerns about the way they were presented and he described it uh, or, or Mel Stewart described Leslie Brickus's take on it as it was an embarrassment. He said that, that, um, that Leslie Brickus called it an embarrassment. Mr. Brickus and his autobiography, which I should uh, say the name of it is pure imagination. And he calls it a sort of autobiography on uh, his life. It definitely. He wrote, he wrote it first as a book called the music man. And then it was kind of out of publication, but he wrote it. He has a wonderful sense of humor. You know, he's in his eighties now. And, and, you know, he's just, it, and, and I'm not giving him his due because not, I talked about his theater work and his film work, but he's also written other just great songs and you know they're just wonderful and a good friend of mine who has had some business dealings with them says he's just an absolutely lovely man at the 50th uh, anniversary screening of dr doolittle where they showed the new 4k print of the american cinema track his cinematech rather he was there and samantha edgar is also in the film was there and they spoke afterwards briefly and samantha edgar says she was sitting in the back with uh leslie brickus and she said, I have not seen it since it came out. And she said, I cried about three or four times. And Mr. Burgess grabbed the microphone and goes, that bad, huh? So funny guy, right? I would love to meet Leslie Burgess one day. The closer I come on, is on, the closest I've come is on the new Blu-ray of that 50th anniversary of Dr. Doolittle. He does an audio commentary uh, and really talks about it. So it's really great. But his book is actually great. So if anybody's a fan, and wants to see just on the cover, it shows you all the great things that he's written. It's a great read. And you you don't have to be that much into movies or anything because he talks about all the stars he's met and places he's been. He's a great world traveler. I think in the introduction, uh, the great Roger Moore, one of the great James Bonds, of course, says, you know, your 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 life's going to be planned after you read this book because you're going to know which city in the world has the best restaurant because he goes to all of them. So there you have it. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, 50 Years Young, uh, a timeless, great film. The only other kids' film I can think that's as wacky, nutty, and out there is a, is, um, a film called The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, which is a Dr. Seuss uh, film uh, that's original. It's not, I don't think it's based on a book or anything that's written for the movies, but that's a discussion for another time. Well, thank you, Peter, for coming back to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Ryan. I want to thank you for creating a wonderful podcast that celebrates soundtracks and all the memories of them. And I want to thank your listeners uh, very much for listening and supporting such a great podcast. And uh, I'll be listening to all of you that will be guesting on the show. And I enjoy hearing your memories. And, and there's a, uh, also it's a voyage of discovery because I'm discovering some films and soundtracks I haven't heard as well. So Peter is the owner of Shadowlight Entertainment. He's working on plenty of projects. He's also on Instagram and Twitter, and we'll have links to his accounts there as well. Uh, but yeah, thanks, Peter, for coming on and celebrating the 50th anniversary of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory with us. My pleasure, Ryan. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.